If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. And if you are looking to tag along in the Blue Bibles, that's going to be on page 384. Uh, Thank you for humoring me in uh, bringing forward uh, Christmas songs as part of our singing this morning. Uh, The song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is my favorite Christmas song. It's a sense of longing, the sense of desire for the for the king to come. And it's that same sense that this morning, hopefully we'll talk about a little bit, but uh, ultimately this is the sense that as Christmas comes, as that anticipation comes, this should be the feeling that we have, that that longing for Christ, not only to come for his first coming, but for his second coming in the book of Revelation when we're told about that. And so I am grateful to be able to have good songs, to be able to sing, to express these longings that we are to feel. Now, again, Jeremiah chapter 31 is the chapter we're turning to. Now, after today, we will have completed our overview through the Old Testament. Now, there's going to be a few books that we skipped over, uh, particularly the wisdom books. But this morning, we have come to the end. We have come to the books of the prophets, of the ways that they spoke to Israel. And we're going to be talking about all of that that's going on. But I really do pray that this has been helpful for you. That this has opened your eyes to the beauty and the incredible story of the Old Testament. That uh, you wouldn't just love the Lord, but you would also love his word. And not simply pull yourself off to the side and just say it's not important. Um, And whether we read it, whether we listen to it, no matter what it is, that we would desire more of his word. So as we went through all all of this series, I'm going to recap really quickly. We started off with the covenant with humanity, and that's found in Genesis 1. And essentially, that's stating in that covenant that humanity is to be the priest king over all of creation. But guess what? They fail. And we see that in Genesis 3. And as they fail, they are cursed and sent out because of their sin. But God promises an offspring to Eve to defeat the serpent, and the one who will defeat the serpent and reverse the curse of sin. And then we see... The covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, continuing on. We spent a whole day, a whole morning talking about that. And this is this unconditional covenant where God himself walks between the creatures that were cut. You remember that? To cut the covenant, he cuts the animals in half. And for the covenant, you each walk through their entrails and their blood. And that is to say, let it happen to me as it has happened to these animals if I break this covenant. And the Lord puts Abraham into a deep sleep. And only the Lord walks through, saying, I will take on the responsibilities and consequences of both sides of this. We saw, uh, looking back a couple of chapters before then, uh, God reiterating that covenant with humanity with Noah. And in that promise, in that covenant with Noah, he said he was never going to pour out all of his wrath on all of the world again for their sin. And rather, he says, I'm going to hang my bow in the clouds. And the bow in the clouds is the rainbow. If you look at the rainbow, the direction it's pointed, if you were to fire it off, it's pointed into heaven. It's not pointed to earth. It's as if God was saying, the next time I pour out my wrath on sin, I'm going to bear those consequences myself. The world will not have to. And then we get into Exodus and we have the covenant with Israel. And this one's been different from the other ones because it's five chapters long, this covenant. The other ones are maybe a chapter or just a couple of verses, if that. And in this one, God makes this conditional covenant saying, I have brought you out of the land of Egypt. I've saved you from slavery. Now, therefore, because I've done those things, obey my commandments. 
And if you obey my commandments, you will live long in the land. You will have, uh, you will live long in the land that I've given you and you will be a great nation. But what do we see over and over again? They fail. They fall. And what that ends up leading us to is recognizing that we need someone who can keep the law. Though God was merciful in providing other ways to where they could sacrifice animals rather than be killed themselves, we need a better sacrifice. We need a better law keeper. So then we, until last week, we started to talk about the life of David, the great king who loved the Lord, who loved his word, who uh, shouted out, I want more of it. God, give me more. And to David, God makes a covenant specifically to David and he promises him an offspring. And if you remember last week in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, we talked about this promised offspring of David. This one whose kingdom will last forever. This one who, uh, we're going to get into him a lot more in the prophets because the prophets talk about him a lot. But this king who would come through David's line and who would rescue Israel and who would have an everlasting kingdom. But what do we keep seeing from David's line? The kings are just like everyone who came before them. Even David falls to sin. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. Every generation, there are some bright spots and then it falls off the cliff again and gets worse and worse and worse until finally God says, I'm fed up with it. You, I'm, I, my patience has run out over centuries. My patience has run out because you are stubborn people who you break your covenant with me. And so because of that, I'm taking away my hand of protection over you and you will be taken into exile. And so uh, last week we looked at how they were taken into exile. We even looked at the return from exile. And this morning we start to talk about the final covenant in the scriptures that uh, pertains to Yahweh making a covenant with man. And it's called the new covenant. And this is a covenant that's only found in the prophets and in the New Testament being spoken about. And it is a future promise. It's a covenant that is not enacted when God starts to talk about it. It's a covenant that is going to be enacted later. And it is this promise of new life for his people. And may we love this new covenant because we've been invited into this one. The rest of them are for a specific people in a specific place. This one is for all the world. Now, let's read Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31 together. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, but not like the covenant that I had made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So not like the Mosaic the covenant with Israel. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares Yahweh. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, No, Yahweh, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Let's pray and let's dig into this good news. 
Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we can go and see how you have worked throughout all of history and time to bring us to the point where we are now, even today. Father, you are so good. You're so gracious to us. May we glorify you in uh, the ways that we study, we hear, and uh, obey your word. Lord, may we be changed by the speaking and the preaching of your word, uh, by the reading of your word, by the hearing of your word. Lord, give us these new hearts if we do not have them. God, we desire to be able to love your law and to know it already on our hearts. Father, thank you for the ways that you have blessed this church. Uh, Father, we pray healing over those who are not able to be with us this morning because of sickness. We pray for their safety and healing that we may join together and worship uh, you alongside them once more. Thank you, Father, for all that you do. May you continue to bless this church, and Lord, may we be a blessing to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, as I've said a couple of times, we are digging into the prophets this morning. And the prophets are found in the, the last books of the Old Testament. The last section of books is the prophets. And they're split into two groups. We talked about this way back a month and a half ago now. There's the major prophets, which is Isaiah through Daniel. And they're called the major prophets simply because they're long. And then you have a book of 12 uh, minor prophets. And so 12 minor prophets, and that is Hosea to Malachi. And they're called the minor prophets because they're much shorter. And while the job of the prophets was certainly, uh, at one point they were foretelling, they were telling the future of what was going to happen uh, to God's people, God was giving them that duty. They actually were primarily called to, uh, they were utilized to call the kings to repentance. The prophets were not so much focused on what God was going to do, though there is that there, but so much, much more focused on what God had done and calling people to remember that and repent of their sins. So often, uh, nowadays, we'll have people calling themselves prophets and all their, uh, generally what they do is they say something over you that's really, uh, uh, it just lifts up your spirits and it's vague and it lifts up your spirits. But these prophets, these prophets were killed for the things they said. These prophets gave bad, uh, bad prophecies. They told the kings what was going to happen because of their sin. So let's not get tied up into some of these movements that are going uh, for a lot of emotionalism and bringing us into those things, but rather let's love the Lord so much and recognize that his prophets are called to call us back to the scriptures to call us back to our first love, God, and to call us back to Christ and repentance. It is not to build us up in where we feel necessarily at the moment. Those, I'm not saying God doesn't do that sometimes. Primarily, though, the prophets did all of this, calling back to covenant faithfulness, telling of the things to come by looking at three covenants. And we already talked about the new covenant. That's going to be the third one that we're talking about. But before that, they're talking about the Mosaic covenant, which is the call to repentance, call to come back to the Lord's law to love him. And then you have the Davidic covenant, which is the foretelling. It is the, the foretelling and saying, there is going to be a king raised up. God has not forgotten his promise to David. It is going to happen. And then we have the new covenant where the promise of new life is being given. So in the Mosaic covenant, we see that call to for that call to repentance and that destruction that is being foretold as well. They're saying, you have ignored the covenant, and so destruction is coming for you. And the prophets were warning of the consequences of rebellion. The covenant was spoken of as a marriage, even in this passage that we just read. God said, I was to them as their husband. 
And when I've talked about the covenant, often I say a marriage is about the only covenant we retain anymore. We have legal documents, but that's different. The legal agreement is different from a covenant because there's relationship involved. And so a covenant, God talks about it as being the marriage. And it's in the prophets that we get language given to what it means to be breaking the covenant. And it, the way that he talks about Israel breaking the covenant is like an adulterous wife. He uses strong language. Uh, like, I mean, this is in the Bible. He says that Israel has whored themselves out to other gods. He says, he uses this strong language to show how serious it is that Israel is sinning against God. That they have rebelled and broken their covenant and that he is being patient. And if you really want to see the way that that looks, how patient and how many times God has brought Israel back in as his wife, even as they're running away and breaking that covenant over and over, read the prophet Hosea. That entire story is meant to be a prophetic example of how Israel was treating God, Hosea and his wife Gomer. They gave these dire prophetic promises of what was to come for Israel and Judah if they continued to ignore those covenant vows. This morning as I'm doing, as I'm performing a marriage, this is, this is hitting me a lot more this morning actually than normal as I'm thinking through the, the, the wedding sermon and those things. It's hit me a lot more about how serious this is to be breaking this covenant. They were warned over and over again that they would be, end up being destroyed by invading armies for the rebellion and they still wouldn't repent. In fact, most of the kings didn't care. They killed the prophets. They sought the prophets out to kill them. And there's a fascinating story that I had never picked up on before, but in my study this week, it's a story in Jeremiah where Jeremiah, he's off in the hills and he has a scribe that he dictates the, uh, the prophecies to. And this scribe, Baruch, he takes the prophecy and Jeremiah sends him into the city to go before the king, to pre- present it before the king. The people there who kind of intercept the message beforehand, they're like, okay, we're going to take this before the king. You go back into hiding because it's dangerous for this. To, uh, we believe that it's true and it's from God, but it's dangerous for you and Jeremiah. Stay in hiding. And so they took it into the king. And as they read it to the king, line by line, as they worked their way through, the king took a knife, cut off that line, and dropped it in a fire pot and burned it. The disdain for the word of God that was coming from these, uh, these kings, from these prophets. They didn't, they didn't care about the word of God. They didn't care that they were being an adulterous wife to the God that they were in covenant with. These kings continued. And it wasn't just this king. It was over and over. Uh, the story of Elijah is in, uh, oh, goodness, First Kings, I believe. Uh, and in Elijah, he's continuously, you hear him crying out, Father, or God, what are they doing? Like, what are you doing? Do you even care? My life is going to be taken from me. So that first covenant is that call back to the Mosaic covenant to recognize the promises that were made between uh, the Israelites and God. In many senses, this is called the old covenant or the first covenant, uh, even though we have the other covenants that we talk about. In the New Testament, that's what, it's, it, that's what they say. It's the old covenant or the first covenant. Now, the second covenant that the prophets talk about, then they spend a lot of time talking about this, is the Davidic covenant. And in the Davidic covenant, 
uh, it's referenced over and over again by the prophets. And in this Davidic covenant, as they keep bringing it up, they say, God has not forgotten his promise to David. In Psalm 89, even in the Psalms that they talk about the Davidic covenant, God declares in the Psalm 89, I will not lie to David. I am going to raise up a king who is going to reign forever. And yet for hundreds of years, they don't see this. And in fact, it looks like David's line is close to being wiped out when they go into exile. But what do we see in these prophetic promises of what the Davidic king is going to be like? The prophets give us more and more and more details. Not simply is he going to be from the line of David, but he is going to be a good shepherd. And we see in Ezekiel 34 where I ta- how God talks about, I'm going to rescue my flock and I will judge between them. And I will set up one shepherd, my servant David, which means the son of David, and he shall feed them and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. This promised Davidic king is going to be a good shepherd. He's also going to be a righteous and just judge. In the prophet Jeremiah chapter 23, we see that uh, Yahweh declares, behold, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And they use a lot of tree metaphors to talk about the, uh, who is coming. The, the Davidic king. So the branch of David or the, the root of Jesse or the stump of Jesse, they use these uh, languages to talk about the coming Davidic king. And he says he will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. This Davidic king who is coming is going to be called the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace. Now, David was a great king, but could he be called mighty God? Everlasting father? He couldn't. So this is going to be a greater king than even David. And we see that that specifically comes from Isaiah 9, uh, verse 6. When we, uh, we love to quote that around Christmas time. In our songs, we like to have that there. But then we also see that this Davidic king from that same passage is going to have an everlasting and peaceful kingdom. This Davidic king is going to be the one who is the best example of what it means to fear Yahweh and to love Yahweh. And he is going to gather the nations to himself. We see all throughout the prophets that he's talking about, all my people who are scattered among all the nations. Now, in one sense, we could be thinking about that as the Israelites who are in exile. But in a completely another sense, there's this talk about all the nations coming to this Davidic king. All of the nations, not just those who are scattered, but all of the nations are coming to this king to see his righteousness, to be under his rule. And it's incredible. And Amos, now, here's the prophet we haven't talked about yet. Oh, Amos. I'd love to preach over Amos at some point. Side note. Um, But he says in the last chapter, all of Amos, and it's nine chapters, and eight and a half of those chapters is declaring death and destruction for Judah. But the last half of the final chapter talks about how he's going to raise up the child of David, the Davidic king that has fallen. Or the, he's going to raise up the booth of David, the family of David that has fallen and repair it. He talks about how the, all the nations who are called by his name are going to come under this king. And not only that, he says the days are coming when the plowman is going to overtake the reaper. 
And the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. He's saying there's going to be so much vibrancy and life that they're not going to be able to keep up with it. All of your food, the, uh, all of the good things that God is offering, there's no way for you to keep up with what this is going to be because I am giving you something wonderful and good. And so then we see from that, that the curse of sin on the land that has come all the way back since Genesis 1 is going to be reversed under this Davidic king. All of these promises are coming to fruition. God is saying, I am working all things together for the good of those who trust me. And in Micah 5.2, we hear where this king is going to come from. The little town of Bethlehem. It's too little to be considered a clan among the clans of Judah. But from Bethlehem is going to come a ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This ruler who's coming from Bethlehem is the one who's been promised, and he is the only one who can be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the one who comes from ancient of days. Which then leads us into the new covenant, in this promised new life. So we already read Jeremiah 31 where he talks about how he's going to put his law in their hearts. Because if you remember the stories, I mean, just now, like the law, the, the, the sayings of God can be burned if they're written down. The things of God can be crushed like in the story of Moses coming down from Mount Sinai when he destroys the tablets. All of this can, be happen, can happen, but when it is put on the hearts of God's people, it cannot be destroyed. And this covenant, this new covenant, is tightly interwoven with the Davidic covenant. It talks about the need for a new covenant. It talks about how in the past, people hated the law. They were seeking to destroy it. As much as God put forward the law to show them how we could make him happy, in a sense, how we can bless him by obeying him, that is as much as we can then also disobey him. And he can show us then how much we disobey him. And it's just showing over and over and over again through all the generations of humanity that we cannot keep the laws of God. Our hearts are turned towards sin, not towards the Lord. So there's a need for a new covenant since the old one has been broken over and over and over and over and over again. Now in the talking of the new covenant, we're also introduced to this person who's called the suffering servant of Yahweh, the servant of Yahweh. He's introduced throughout a lot of the prophets, but there are specifically um, some verses in Isaiah that talk about that suffering servant. The one, he was, behold, he was uh, bruised for, for our iniquities. He was crushed. God saw fit to crush him for the sin of us all. This suffering servant is in the new covenant he is the one who will come and enact the new covenant. And this suffering servant is also that Davidic king who is going to come. So then in the new covenant, we see that the law is written on hearts and not just on stone tablets. We see that the Gentiles have been grafted in as descendants of Abraham. We see that all of the nations are invited. This isn't just for Israel. In the New Testament, Paul talks about how uh, 
the Gentiles have been grafted in through the new covenant. That this tree that had been growing, if you, if you don't know what grafting is, it's when you take a healthy tree and then you take another species of a tree that it needs some help growing and you cut into the stem of that other tree or the other plant and you stick that other one in there. And so that healthier plant then gives this other plant life so you can grow two plants together off of the same stem. And so this is what, David, what uh, Paul is saying when he's saying that the Gentiles have been grafted in. This new covenant is the way in which we are invited into relationship with God. We don't have to be Jews to be in covenant relationship with Yahweh. We also see in this new covenant that Jerusalem is restored. This city, the great city that was destroyed by the coming, um, the coming armies, the coming empires. This city is going to be restored. And then we see that Eden itself, the garden, the perfection of the garden is going to be restored. In Ezekiel 36, we see God saying in verse 35, they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am Yahweh. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am Yahweh. I have spoken and I will do it. Praise God that he is not leaving us in the destruction of our sin. That he didn't leave Israel for that. That he was always offering hope. That even as the sin takes us further and further and further, that he is willing and ready to restore all of it. In this new covenant, then we also see that Yahweh is king over all the earth. We then also see that life is given without price in the new covenant. Food, drink, that which is given without asking anything else back. It is all free. This life is free to us. We also see that those in the new covenant are given new hearts and a new spirit. There are two places in the Old Testament where the new covenant is specifically referenced. The first is Jeremiah 31 that we read. And the next is Ezekiel 11. And in this, in Ezekiel 11, starting in verse 19, God says this, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. And hundreds of years before this, last week we read Psalm 51 where we see David crying out, I need a new heart. God, clean my heart. Restore me to your salvation. David recognized the need for this new covenant. So then, how does this new covenant come about? The realization of the new covenant is coming through Jesus. We saw that in Matthew 1. That is, again, why that genealogy is there. It's to show that he is the son of David. That's why he's called the son of David over and over as people shout it out. Because they recognize he is this coming, promised Messiah, King. He is the one who was promised, whose rule would never end and whose peace would always be going on forever. Jesus is the promised Davidic king. 
And Jesus is also that sacrifice that enacted, that started the new covenant. He is the creature that was cut for the purpose of the covenant. In Luke 22, next week, we're going to be taking communion. And this, this verse is important. Luke twenty two twenty, 20. After they had taken the, the bread, Jesus likewise took the cup after they had eaten and said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do you see how knowing the Old Testament, how knowing these things makes everything richer? Do you see this? How knowing this makes what Christ is doing at the Lord's Supper. Do you see how that makes all of this so much more rich? That Jesus is finally saying, the promised time is here. I am the one that God promised to your forefathers. I am the one who is coming from ancient days. I am the one who can be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. And Paul recognizes this throughout this, his letters. And the author of Hebrews continues to recognize this as well. They talk about how Jesus' blood is the blood that had to be spilt for the enacting of the new covenant. In the same way that those creatures were cut in half and that that blood had to be spilt for it. Jesus' blood was spilt to begin the new covenant. That is when it, the new covenant was started was when Jesus shed his blood and died on the cross. And the Holy Spirit then is the means by which that new covenant is carried out. The way in which we get a new heart, the way in which our heart of stone is taken out and we're given a heart of flesh is through the power and work of the Holy Spirit. And the apostles recognize this. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples and gave them the ability to proclaim the gospel in other languages that they didn't previously know. And when they... Uh, were accusing when they were trying to figure out what's going on. Peter quoted Joel the prophet and saying, this is the fulfillment of Joel the prophet. When he said, and in the last days, it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And when the prophet Joel there says all flesh, he wasn't talking about every single person without exception because in that same passage that that is taken from in Joel 2, he says, those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who do not then call on his name and sense no need for him or joy in him are not saved. They are not the ones that the Spirit is poured out upon. The promise of the Spirit is not for them. It is for those who call on the name of the Lord, on the name of Yahweh. So when, Joel declare, so when God declares through Joel that the Spirit of God will be poured out on, on all flesh, he is stating that no one, by reason of birth, will be excluded. The Gentiles are welcomed in. We're welcomed in. We Gentiles. You can't look at anyone and say, you're not a Jew, so you can't be in the new covenant. You can't say, their skin isn't the right color, so they can't be in the new covenant. You can't say that they're not the right gender to be in the new covenant. Jesus has united us all under the new covenant. And that's talked about in uh, the epistles. Paul talks about how there's neither uh, Greek nor Jew nor male nor female in Christ. We don't have these differentiations in that sense to where, oh, some are able to get more of it than others. We are all invited in. And this is a firm standing point for us as Baptists that there is the priesthood of every single believer that everyone 
has the Spirit, who is a Christian. If you are a Christian, you have the Spirit. And so then you are a priest unto God. And so this is why we practice congregationalism. This is why I encourage you to be in the Scriptures and study. Because it affects the church if you don't know what the Bible has to say. Because you are the ultimate earthly authority for this church. This is why we present those who are acting unrepentantly in ways that are not Christian. We present them to the church to be sent out. It's not, I don't say, no, you can't be a Christian. And ultimately, I'm not even the one who says, no, you can't be a member of this church, or yes, you can be a member of this church. Ultimately, I recommend people to you for membership or for excommunication. And that is on you then, as the congregation, to hold that accountable. It's also on you to hold me accountable as your pastor, because you are a priest, male, female, Jew or Greek. You are a priest. And it is your responsibility to know the scriptures so that you can know whether what I'm teaching is wrong. Because we're promised that there will be those who will come and just say what your itching ears want to hear. So know the scriptures so that you can know whether what I'm saying is right or wrong. And then if you find that I misspoke, that I said something that I shouldn't have said, or if uh, sometimes unintentionally I can make a statement that I didn't mean to say the way I said it, but it comes out as a heretical statement, you're welcome to point that out to me if you hear it. If, I, if you ever hear someone saying that Jesus is a form of God or a different mode of God, you're free to call that out. So even though we're Gentiles, even though we were not part of that first covenant, we've been invited into this new covenant. And what we learn from the New Testament is that the only way to receive the promise of the Spirit is to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. The name of the Father, the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of our sins. Peter concludes his sermon in Acts 2.38 with these words where he said, Joel said that this is going to happen. He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter is announcing that with the coming of Christ, calling upon the name of the Lord means turning from all of our other hopes and calling upon Jesus in the act of baptism. So then it's better We see in the scriptures, they say that it is better to be under the new covenant than under the old covenant. Under the old covenant, we all must become Jews and hold to the law, which is only supposed to show us how much we need a savior. I've heard someone say that if you use the law, if you look at the law and say, these are all the things I need to do to be saved. That's like going to the mirror, noticing that you have something stuck in your teeth and then pulling the mirror off the wall to try to pick it out of your teeth. The law was never intended for that. It was intended to show us how much we cannot be perfect. Not to make us think that we could be perfect if we do it well enough. Under the new covenant, though, God has come to us and invited us to be restored in relationship to him. By Christ's substituting work on the cross and his righteousness being then put on us and given to us and by the very spirit of God coming to live within us and giving us that new heart, we are now in this new covenant. We are given a new heart that isn't constantly drawn to sin and rebellion and that has been set free to pursue righteousness. We have been given life through the spilled blood of Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within our lives. 2 Corinthians 3.6 says, 
God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, meaning the law, but of the spirit. For the letter, the law kills. It kills us. But the spirit gives life. So let me tell you a story. I was regenerated by God one week from today, exactly 10 years ago. And I know that because, uh, I'll get to that in a second anyways. Uh, And for the longest time, I could not tell you when it happened. I couldn't tell you that. I had just started my first semester of college and I had lost all of my Christian structure and foundation that had been built around me by my family. I wasn't a Christian, though I thought I was. And I was starting to spiral into sin. I was at a Christian college that required chapel attendance. So I went to the chapel service and I didn't pay much attention, which was my usual attitude. But toward the end of the chapel, the women's soccer team went up and they played a cutesy video of them playing with kids on a missions trip. And by the end of the video, I was openly sobbing. For years, as I recounted this story, I would tell people that it felt like God was ripping my heart out of my chest. And, that's, uh, and I couldn't explain why and why I was sobbing and why it had so much on, uh, in, implications in my life. And I went and I typed an earnest prayer to God that said, in part, God, please guide me to the place I need to be in order to serve you best. Guide me to the people who can mentor me and help me become the man you want me to be. Don't let me lose sight of this. Smack me in the face if I look the wrong way. Whatever your will may be done. So then I posted that prayer to Facebook to be held accountable so that other people would see it. That's how I know exactly the date. It pops back up on my feed every year. And then I promptly forgot about it. But when God gave me a new heart that day, he made me part of that grand inheritance for his son, Jesus, the Christ, the promised offspring of Eve, of Abraham, and of David. And he wasn't about to let me go that easily. He honored my prayer and smacked me in the face to the tune of what's called a thunderclap headache, to where it comes on like a thunderclap. And it usually is a sign that your brain has started bleeding, which it was. So then I was given that a brain aneurysm by God. I say it freely. And people tell me, don't, don't attribute these negative things to God. But God did that in my life. God, to, uh, he meant for this bad thing in my life to be good. And what seems bad to me is good. And so that moment was the moment where my life pivoted. And I got to be honest, it was a journey. Even as I forgot about that prayer for a month and then God would not let me go. Praise God for his patience and for his tenacity. But even in that, I struggled. The addictions that I had built up were still with me. The, The ways that I had sought for myself what was good and what was right, that left effects on me. But the change was that I didn't want those anymore. I wanted to be rid of those things, even though they still had their hold on me. I was fighting through the power of the Holy Spirit to be free from sin and not to be going my own way. For so long, as a Christian, as a Christian growing up, quote unquote, 
I believed that God loved me and was proud of me just the way I was so long as I made an earnest effort to follow his rules, which really is kind of like Mormonism more than Christianity. For so long, I believed that I could do enough good things and that was what it meant to be a Christian. I didn't understand how it was impossible to be a Christian without the Holy Spirit giving me a new heart. We have been invited into this new covenant. We need new hearts. We need that heart of stone to be taken out and the heart of flesh to be put in. We need, if we want to desire what God wants, we need a new heart to do that. If we want to honor God, it is through the new heart that we do that. It is not through working harder and harder and harder. We need the Holy Spirit then too. We need the Spirit to guide us, to shape us, to mold us, to tell us what is right and what is wrong, to, through the power of the Scriptures being proclaimed, the power of the Holy Spirit takes that and molds our hearts shaped on, based on that. This is why the Scriptures are so important. Because before, when we would read it and we would say, this is foolishness, or, oh, you know what, I can do that. I'm going to work hard to do that. Now we have the Spirit of God. If we are in Christ, we have the Spirit of God within us, molding and shaping our hearts to desire what God wants. The ways my life has changed, I can't, I can't tell you how much. I am pretty introverted, <laughs> uh, to be completely honest. I like my alone time. I don't like going to meeting new people, for the most part. But the ways that my desires have changed, my desire to invite people into my home, people who are very different from me, people who don't know the Lord, I want them in my home so that I can speak to them. I want to go to them so that I can proclaim these things to them. It has changed my life. And the Holy Spirit is so much more than a cosmic helper that just gives us supernatural powers. Like so many in our culture are just so quick to, like, to just jump on and make it all about the healing, all about the gifts and the good things that God can give us. The Holy Spirit is the very Spirit of God dwelling within us. He is the one who writes the law of God on our hearts. If you can imagine a greater miracle than a sinner with a heart of stone being given a heart of flesh, I want to hear it. Because you're dead. You need to be resurrected. And so the new covenant is better than the old covenant. And for so long, I was so grateful to be saved that I just wanted to be a servant in the house of God. That was enough for me, and it still is. But we have been invited into adoption. Not simply servants, but sons and daughters of the king. Jesus was the perfect man who took on himself the responsibility and authority of Adam, the representative head of humanity. Through being that sacrifice who was the cut sacrifice for the new covenant, Christ bought for himself a family who could stand before the presence of the Father and not be destroyed. In a very real sense, we have been married into the family of God. How incredible is that? Have any of you married up in a family? And to the person you married, like, wow, I can't believe this family wants to associate with me. It is the ultimate marrying up if we are found in Christ. Our King, Jesus, 
the son of David, who goes before us and represents us, has perfectly obeyed the law. The one that every other king, every other leader has broken. Each one of you has broken. Me, I have broken. In Jesus, we can be redeemed to the perfect and holy father and creator. And all of this can be ours if we believe Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the son of God and repent of our sinful rebellion against him and say, God, I'm done. I am done choosing things for myself. I've made a mess of it. I will bow before your son, before you, the father, before the Holy Spirit, and I give up my rights to my life. I recognize that I am your created being and that you know what is best for me and that you will do what is best for me, even if that seems evil to me. And that I will give up my own preferences in order to be shaped and molded and changed by God. This is how we are saved. By acknowledging that Jesus is king and we are not. And then by Allowing ourselves to be changed by that. We are saved because of the work that Jesus has done and all that it takes is faith. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. Faith requires action. If you have faith in something, your actions will follow. One day, Jesus is going to return. We're promised this in the final book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. And the work that he started on the cross, eliminating sin and the curse of sin, is going to be completed. This is why, though all those promises are in the Old Testament of restoring Jerusalem, of restoring Eden, we don't see that yet, do we? There's still thorns and thistles. We still must sweat and bleed to work the ground. There's still pain and childbirth. The end has not yet come. And when... In the scriptures, when it talks about why it has not come yet, it's because God is patient. He is giving you time to repent. And he's giving you time to proclaim his gospel. He's giving you time to give him the right due in all of the earth that his name would be glorified. And the promise at the end is so beautiful. They say, uh, John, the, uh, the one who wrote Revelation, who was given the vision, he says, I saw the new Jerusalem coming out of the clouds. And there's a new heavens and a new earth. And everything was remade. And God himself dwells among his people and is their God. All of sin and wickedness, Satan and death, all of it is thrown into the lake of fire. Never to be heard from again. It is in this time that we can look forward to it. When we sing the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it's not just looking forward to Jesus the baby, but it's Jesus the King when He returns. The book of Revelation, we should have victory in knowing what is coming. We shouldn't walk around as those who are defeated. We shouldn't walk around as those who are so uh, worried about the ways that the world is changing around us. We should have confidence in Christ and that He will return. This is what we should look forward to. And it says toward the end of Revelation, as God himself dwells among us and is our God, every tear, he himself wipes away every tear from his children's eyes. And all the pain and sorrows are no more. And all of this 
Ultimately, all of this finds its roots in the Old Testament. All of this. The book of Revelation, the Gospels, the Epistles, all of the New Testament, your own very life and your circumstances today, all of this is spoken about in the Old Testament. All of this is shown if we just would study and find the good teachers who would teach us. And so ultimately, brothers and sisters, my hope with this series, I know it's been a lot. We did three weeks of 55-minute sermons. I get it. It's a lot. And I'm sorry. There's a lot to get through. And I might break it up even more if I ever do this again. But all of this has been done because I want you to have the utmost joy in Christ and in the word of God. I want you to love his word. I want you to be blessed by his word. And I don't want you to be ignoring the hard parts because I'm not going to either. I'm not allowed. That's why I preach verse by verse through the Bible, through books of the Bible, because I don't want to skip important words of life, even if they're hard to hear. So now, may he, oh God, I pray that you all are blessed by this. I really do. Thank you. I love you guys. I'm grateful for you. Let's pray. Father, you're so good and gracious to us. Father, as we celebrate what you have done in your covenants, as we celebrate the reading of the scriptures and the love uh, that you have shown to us, even from the beginning of time, that it was always your intention, that you made it clear, even from the fall, that you did not simply want Israel. You wanted to invite all of the world into the greatest family that we could possibly be part of. And God, when I look at my life, I say, why me? But I'm so grateful that you have chosen me and brought me in, that you have given me a new heart, that you have resurrected my dead corpse and given me new life. Father, may we all see that. May we repent of the things that we need to repent of. May we love you, Lord. May we seek to honor and glorify you above all else. You are so good to us. Thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.